0: And a good afternoon to you. Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett as this Arctic cold front continues, likely right through until Wednesday before we see any notable relief. And with that, we all change the way we go about our daily lives. Uh, One of those challenges in the city of Vancouver, identified by Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby Young, uh, saying that there are some gaps in Vancouver's snow response plan. She's on the line with us now. And Sarah, um, I know this went before Council. Something went wrong. Could you walk us, no pun intended, through this?
1: Hi, good morning, Bruce. How are you?
0: Doing very well and uh, staying warm.
1: Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Um, Yeah, this did go through Council. I brought a motion forward actually in 2020 in February. And then a report came back to Council in uh, March of this year. Um, to upgrade the pedestrian priority in Vancouver's snow response because I had heard from residents over a number of years that there was a big gap, and oftentimes you would see the priority bike routes being cleared but not the pedestrian path alongside them. And so we had some recommendations that came forward um, that said essentially that the City of Vancouver staff, as part of our updated snow policy, would clear those priority pedestrian pathways. And at the same time, we designated about 255 kilometres as Winter priority sidewalks um, that also had to be cleared, and we often rely on private property owners to clear those. Um, but, bottom line, unfortunately, we had the snowfall, and uh, the operators didn't clear them. It was just a complete gap for in the service.
0: Okay, now let's get this clear. What is a priority pathway? What are we talking about? What makes it a priority?
1: Uh, you're talking about some of the really well-used pathways that typically uh, people like to either get from A to B um, or like being outside on. So something like the, RV, the screenway, Greenway, um, bridges. So think of something like the Broad Bridge pathway that was also a mess that didn't get cleared. Um, things like arterial adjacent to arterial bus stops on arterial routes, um, arterial curb cuts, things of, of that nature.
0: And we're looking at this and seeing uh, what you've put out there on social media these priority pathways are right next to bike lanes, and the bike lanes appear to be cleared. Do I have that right?
1: Uh, you do have that right, uh, and that was the gap, and that was the message that the operators went out for the old policy and procedure and cleared the bike routes. Um, and despite the policy being updated in the new direction from council, they did not clear the pedestrian routes. Um, and unfortunately, that creates this um, kind of age old Vancouver um, divide uh, between bikes versus pedestrians and pits them against each other. And it, it shouldn't be that way. Um, it shouldn't be either or. It should be both.
0: Now, some would argue you might be stoking some of that uh, controversy, you might say, between the bikers and the pedestrians. And yes, there is that old argument of uh, bikers getting, uh, you know, favorable treatment, perhaps. Is this more politics than anything, or is this a real concern? Let's be honest.
1: No, this is a real concern, and I hear this time and time again from pedestrians, and it's about it's not about politicizing. it's about equalizing um, so that pedestrians don't feel second class this is a real safety issue. Um, particularly if you're a senior uh, if you're you are a mobility challenge, there is a safety concern in terms of injury. Um, and it's a core city civic service that we should be delivering. So um, it's, it's absolutely not political for me. It's, it's In fact, um, our core services shouldn't be politicized. They should just be delivered.
0: Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young. And uh, when we talk about Vancouver and clearing the paths, is this something, uh, or not clearing the paths for pedestrians, is this something unique to Vancouver as a problem or do you hear it in other cities that perhaps don't get snow all the time, but when the snow comes, uh, they're not up to snuff?
1: I think we hear about it more in Vancouver. I mean, I'm a councillor here in the city, so I can speak for this one. Um, I'm not aware of there being as much chatter and kind of dissatisfaction um, that I hear um, with other cities. Um, But I think that we've also really prioritized cyclists for so long. But we're moving in the city, keep in mind now, especially with extreme weather events and climate, towards trying to encourage people to live in complete walkable communities. That means denser communities, and, um, you know, near transit and near services. And so that really does mean that they need to be walkable. That's what we're trying to build.
0: Okay, and obviously we're talking about this and you touched on it. Some people are a little bit more vulnerable than others and uh, thinking about the elderly, of course. Have you actually heard of any people raising this concern with this snowfall or is this uh, an observation coming mainly from you?
2: Um,
1: I did hear from people um, and when uh, people started bringing to my attention the different routes that hadn't been cleared, like down near the Convention Centre, the Arbutus Greenway, um, Central Valley, Greenway, Broadbridge, then um, I started to uh, hear from people directly that were talking about uh, a path in their neighbourhood or something that wasn't clear in their own experience.
0: Is there liability for the city?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if it's part of our snow policy and we commit to doing it, then yes, absolutely. Um, just like there is a liability for private property owners who are subject to a fine if they do not clear um, the area in front of their, their um, sidewalks or their businesses, and that's or residences, and that's put in place um, exactly uh, to keep a safe environment for everybody and to avoid liability. So, yeah, it's very much uh, it's a safety responsibility in my mind.
0: Now, Sarah Kirby Young, uh, since you put this out, have you heard any uh, reaction or any uh, positive steps toward uh, getting this done? Is there anything that gives you hope?
1: Yeah, I've been in contact with the city manager. I mean, I was ahead of time before we had the big snow event, knowing that the weather was going to get a lot colder and we were expecting some of the white stuff to fall um, and uh, was assured that we had crews on deck and we're ready to go. Um, and I've been in touch after when we um, had the gap and didn't clear the priority path. And uh, I understand that uh, they're taking steps now to ensure that there's additional briefings for crews um, and to make sure that everybody is clear on the procedures.
0: And when you talked to the city manager, what was his reason for these paths not being done?
1: Uh, he just quite honestly said that there was there was a gap. It just didn't happen. It was just a myth. And, and we are trying to, I think, uh, change procedures that have been in place for some time and evolve the culture to make this a, you know, a pedestrian-friendly city as well as a bike-friendly city. So I think it's a process of change.
0: We're only on December 27th, uh, conceivably it can snow again. January is usually more of a snow season or a snow month than uh, December. Uh, What would you expect to see in the next snowfall when this comes up again?
1: I would expect to see them clearing those pedestrian pathways alongside the bike routes first and then doing the bike routes. Um, And that's what we promised and that's what we should deliver.
0: Pedestrians first, bike second. So there is a priority there that you'd like to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's what uh, that's the information that I have back from staff, and that's the expectation, so absolutely.
0: And Bruce Plankett filling in for Jill Bennett, and boy, what a year it's been with extreme weather conditions. I remember back in, oh, June, when I made the wise choice, end of June, to go camping up in Lytton two days before uh, the big fire and remembering uh, the temperatures at that time being in the mid-40s. Now in December, December 27th, we're dealing with record cold around the province and an Arctic uh, outflow, which continues. And you've got to wonder about this year. Yes, the pandemic has been in there, but a secondary story, the big one for sure, has got to be the extreme weather. And um, remember the floods? The floods out in the Fraser Valley? I mean, some of the damage is still there and we're still dealing with that. And... You know, it's not like it was unforeseen. There were plenty of warnings about what could happen with the Nooksack River in Whatcom County in Washington State and what could happen with overflowing uh, rivers and dikes that really couldn't uh, keep up. And it's not just a problem here in BC. It's right across with Canadian cities. Garnering a C-plus grade for flood readiness, according to the University of Waterloo, an assessment uh, echoed in the Globe and Mail this morning in an editorial, c plus, that's not great. But Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, uh, gets a C, even worse. We simply aren't ready for the next big natural disaster. That's one of the uh, concerns. And to pick up on that is the Chair of Natural Hazard Research at SFU, John Clegg. John, thanks for joining us. Um, Really, uh, is this something to be concerned about?
2: Oh, definitely. I'm not going to hedge my bets on this one. Um, uh, We have seen these extreme events that you mentioned. Um, It's kind of... The manifestation of, uh, of climate change. And uh, we are in the early stages of seeing uh, the effects of uh, warming climate. Um, I think most people didn't feel that it would come on so quickly, you know, that this is something that would uh, gradually appear over the period, over the remainder of this century. But I think uh, the events we've seen this year are definitely a wake-up call. And, uh, you know, I don't, a C would be a generous score, in my opinion. I don't think we've done very well at all in um, preparing for these types of disasters.
0: Now, John, you've been involved in this research at SFU and elsewhere uh, for a long time. Um, certainly, climate change has become more of a popular issue for the last couple of years, but uh, the research has uh, indicated this in the past, hasn't it?
2: Yeah, the uh, well, the community that has been projecting future climate has called attention to the fact that we will experience these extremes. And I know it's hard for some listeners to appreciate how we can have you know an incredible heat dome event and then have what we're experiencing now, which is extreme cold. But uh, you have to understand that the climate is a complex system and it's being perturbed by warming and. And as a result, we're getting uh, unusual, uh, extreme conditions on occasion. And we have to be prepared for those. We have to be far better prepared for those than than we apparently are.
0: I often think that there was a big uh, mistake when it came to earlier designations of global warming. And we were always really talking about climate change and climate extremes to begin with. And some people uh, focus too much on that. The flip side is uh, the extreme with the cold and the extreme when it comes to uh, more water in the system. Um, what's your fear when it comes to uh, the Fraser Valley and the lower mainland right now? Um Do we have to uh, worry about another event uh, like what we saw back in the fall or is that a once in 50 year type thing?
2: Well, it is a it is a rare event, and I wouldn't say like we're going to have that happen next year necessarily. Um, it's likely that we'll have more of these type of events in the future. Um, and I think, uh, irrespective of what we do on the climate change agenda, you know, a portfolio, we do need to be better prepared um, because if you look at, for example, the heat dome event back at the end of June, um, that was predicted by by meteorologists a week before it happened. And uh, really, and I think the government dropped the ball on that. 600 people died as a result. We just were not prepared for that type of event. And I hope we've learned from that lesson. And similarly, our diking system is ill-equipped to handle the extreme amounts of rainfall that we might experience in the future. I just hope we don't go back to, well, you know, it's happened. It'll never happen again. We really do need to invest in improving our infrastructure to deal with, uh, you know, levees that are not equipped to deal with uh, with extreme rainfall, for example. We, the Sumas Prairie event really uh, disturbed me because it had been uh, predicted that that was a very vulnerable low-lying area, and there had been a precursor event in 1990 that caused some flooding. Really, there's no excuse for not being ready for for that. And yet, again, government kind of dropped the ball on it.
0: Well, very honest words. Uh, John Clegg, the chair of natural hazard research at SFU, government dropping the ball. Did we see a different set of priorities on the north side of uh, the border than on the south? Uh, is the governments you know, uh, in Washington state, uh, both, uh, well, I guess it's uh, different levels of government from county to state to uh, national. Did they take it more seriously or did they also fall into this trap?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, we just didn't hear about the flooding in in uh, the Washington side of the border, but there was flooding there too, uh, not causing the same level of damage as we saw uh, in Abbotsford, but still they have problems and they're wrestling with these same issues as well. Um, the atmospheric river that we experienced sort of tracked more across Uh, north of the border, uh, just north of the border, we got really hammered by it. Um, Northern Washington did as well, but they didn't receive the extremes of precipitation that we did in Abbotsford and Hope and uh, Princeton and Merritt, places like that. Um, But there's no reason that the next atmospheric river is going to track the same way that that one did. It may go across northern Washington, and they have many, many vulnerable communities down there. So in a sense, we're not alone in this. You know, the entire pacific northwest can experience these extreme flood events such that 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 we experienced
0: i know it's quite something to talk about this when we have uh well some extreme cold right now that we're dealing with but this is something that we have to take a look at for planning for the future you mentioned government action or government inaction um what would you like to see is there a solution and at what level of government are we talking about
2: well, at, I think all levels of government. I mean, there there has been was an agreement between the federal government and the province of BC to improve the diking system on the Fraser River after the last catastrophic flood that we had in 1948. The federal government does have a role to play. Uh, Much of the role should be with the provincial government. Uh, Communities have the knowledge. You know, people know what the problems are. They just don't have the resources. So there's got to be this integration of the knowledge at the local level with uh, the resources that are only available at a higher level. And I would also say that we need to invest in improving our infrastructure. We are in an inherently hazardous area, you know, a mountainous environment where our roads, rail lines, uh, communities are all uh, situated on valley floors by rivers. So it is inherently kind of a, uh, well, a risky situation. Uh, But we should be able to, prepare to fix our roads so that they don't get washed out every time we have one of these extreme events. The costs are huge, and I would say that we need to invest over a period of time. We need to begin that process, uh, fix up those dikes fix up the ones that are really, really hazardous right now and work our way through that, just as we have improving the uh, seismic resilience of our schools. You know, we spent a lot of money on that. Well, let's work on flooding as well because floods are a big, big hazard in the uh, Pacific Northwest.
0: Now, John, let's talk about the dikes uh, just so we understand what the scale of uh, fixing them up uh, really is. Um, where are they right now? Is it uh, just they're too low or the pump stations aren't there? What are we what are we hearing? And how much work has to be put into it to get at least the dikes in the Fraser Valley and all the way out to uh, say Richmond into the shape that they should be in for the next natural disaster?
2: uh well, that's a very good question and i don't have an exact figure um i do know that we have uh, hundreds if not thousands of kilometers of dikes so it's not a trivial trivial problem um i think you, it needs to be prioritized, uh you know to ensure that the most at-risk communities uh for example merritt and princeton which were heavily impacted by this atmospheric river that that doesn't happen to them again um you you know, you're not going to have the resources to do this all overnight. It's going to take uh, years, if not decades. But we do need to kind of focus more on that project. And I would hope that this would be, uh, you know, something that all all governments would recognize needs to be done. You know, and the kind of the life expectancy of a of a particular party that's governing the province is not very long. But we're all in this together, so I would hope this would be a uh, you know an effort that could transcend uh, short-term priorities. And I understand too that, that you know public expenditures have to be looked at in total. And we've got a lot of problems in this province, you know, with the opioid epidemic. And but the cost of these events, you know, the uh, the flood itself is going to be Canada's most expensive natural disaster. They haven't even totaled the amount, but it's going to we're going to have had the most expensive natural disaster in the country and the wildfires this year they cost us the taxpayer more than 500 million dollars and if you look at it that's about $100 for every man, woman and child in this province so you know we need to kind of think about Uh, you know, a cost-benefit analysis? What is the cost of not doing anything or doing it too slowly versus uh, investing and improving the resilience of our infrastructure?
0: I think the old expression was penny wise and pound foolish. And certainly, yeah, when it comes to uh, planning for this, you have to have the continuity through different governments, as you suggested, and uh, to do some long-term planning that even defies year-to-year budgets or uh, different uh, governments of different political stripes uh, coming in. Thank you very much. Uh, John Clegg, Chair in Natural Hazard Research at Simon Fraser University, and we hope to uh, talk to you again about a very important subject. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Thank you
2: very much for asking me.
0: And Bruce Claggett filling in for Jill Bennett this afternoon. Momentarily, we're going to get to The Canadian Taxpayers Federation and the new tax changes for 2022. Always a bit of an increase and some of the highlights uh, for this year. uh, BC's carbon tax going up 11 cents per liter per liter of gas in 2022. That's right, 11 cents per liter for the next year. That's uh, one of the highlights or lowlights. I don't know which you'd end up uh, calling them. But uh, that's definitely one of the ones uh, that we're highlighting. Uh, Chris Sims with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is on the line joining us now. And Chris, I know this is always something that comes up at this time of year, but how does this year, 2022, compare to previous years in your experience with the tax hikes? Well,
3: here in British Columbia, we don't have as many tax changes and tax hikes as we did last year, for example. So last year at this time, uh, we were anticipating the PST being applied to sweetened drinks. We were anticipating the PST being applied to streaming services such as Netflix and Spotify and the carbon tax going up. Whereas here in B.C. this year, so far, what we have is basically the B.C. carbon tax going up and a difference in property taxes depending on where you are so in metro vancouver the rate is 3.5 percent increase but that's for the metro vancouver regional district so that's for your surface water that sort of stuff depends on where you live though for the individual cities, you'll see uh, property taxes uh, going up at a higher rate for example in vancouver versus a lower rate in places like Port Coquitlam. But overall, across the province here in British Columbia, the main tax change that we need to watch for in 2022 is the carbon tax, which is going to increase April 1st.
0: Okay, and that's, uh, is it just me or is that a bit of a shocker? Uh, 11 cents uh, for 2022, for the entire year, I guess. But 11 cents a litre, what is it usually at? Great question.
3: And so when this first started back in 2008, it was about a cent, cent and a half a litre. And that was back when, you know, B.C. Liberal uh, Premier Gordon Campbell was telling us it was going to reduce emissions. It was going to fund alternative energy sources, uh, all that good stuff. Uh, Today, none of that is true. Uh, They also said it was going to be revenue neutral way back then. None of that, of course, is true today. It's not revenue neutral, even in name only. Uh, they take around $2 billion uh, from British Columbians every year in the single first BC carbon tax. Um, as of right now, is around 9.5, 10 cents a liter. And so now it's going to be going up to 11 cents a liter. And when you think about it, you have to figure out how much fuel your vehicle takes. The average uh, popular minivan holds 75 liters. So that's more than eight bucks now per fill-up, that you're paying in just the one carbon tax, not including the second carbon tax, not including the sales tax on top of that as well.
0: Now, there is a school of thought out there, and there will be people listening to this that say, good, it's about time. Um, that's one of, one of those things that we've got to wean ourselves out of anyways uh, is this reliance on gas. Um, but Canadian Taxpayers Federation, obviously, you have a bit of a different view. What is that view?
3: We definitely have a different view. Our view is that the carbon tax is simply a cash grab and that if politicians can tell you that they're going to save the planet by taxing you to death, they'll do it, which is exactly what they're doing. Uh, Again, we point to the government's own data. The government's own data shows that emissions are going up, not down. They've gone up around 10% in the last three years. They've gone up in five of the last seven years on record. You can go back and look at the government data yourself. Um, And so basically, folks need oil and gas right now, as we stand right now, to get around and to deliver our groceries and to drop our kids off at school and to heat our homes. I don't know about you, uh, but out here near Chilliwack, it got real cold last night. Uh, Most folks rely on natural gas to heat their homes. And this carbon tax increase is going to make that cost more. Now, in the future, um, if we're able to harness other energies that are more efficient and cost productive, then that's great. But as of right now, this tax isn't working because our demand is basically inelastic when it comes to things like oil and gas. Uh, Even if we somehow were able to flip a switch tomorrow, say magically all of us were able to heat our homes sufficiently with electricity, we were able to transport all of our goods. We were able to produce our crops all using electricity. I was speaking with Blair King out of Langley. Uh, he's an analyst and all this stuff. He said that we would need like more than, I think it was more than four brand new site C dams tomorrow if we were able to switch that. I I was shocked to hear that. Uh, so as of right now, we need oil and gas. It's a, It's an essential service. It's an essential oil. Uh, And we're getting taxed on it and punished for it. And our emissions aren't going down. And so this is where we're pleading with the government uh, to please give folks some tax relief. Quit hiking up the carbon tax.
0: We are still seeing a push toward more electric vehicles, though, and people switching over. Does that get you away from the tax burden if you are relying upon power, though? Or is there still a tax built in there and an increase?
3: Great question. So number one, there's BC Hydro, which is directly, you know, hydroelectricity. So you're not getting hit with the carbon tax there yet. Uh, but a lot of folks don't know this. Uh, we actually use natural gas in some parts of British Columbia to produce our electricity for our homes. So if you speak at the folks at Enbridge in that, uh, they'll be able to explain exactly how much we use in a given year. Uh, I only learned that a few years ago, that some electricity customers actually use natural gas. Now, that's much more common in other parts of Canada. And again, here in B.C., they're, they're working on other taxes. So once we say if everybody were able to afford an electric vehicle and we had the juice to do it, say we were able somehow, based on our current grid, to power everybody's magical electrical car that Santa brings you tonight. Um, We're eventually going to get nailed with something called mobility pricing or a fee per kilometre. It's something that the bureaucrats at Metro Vancouver are looking at very very closely. And that's where they will monitor everywhere you drive based on a transponder installed in your car or some other method. And they will tax you for every kilometre you go.
0: Chris Sims is with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, the BC Director of the CTF. And Chris, if you're okay with this, uh, I'm going to keep you around for a few minutes and we're going to open the phone lines at 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898, the phone number there. Are you okay to stick around for a little bit? Sure thing. Okay. Now, one of the things that, and thank you for that, one of the things that uh, you've also picked up on Is taxpayers making more than $40,000? We'll see uh, federal government uh, deduct more money. What's uh, that all about in uh, the year-end report here?
3: That out every single year. Uh, You can take a look at it there, and it's basically the difference of what you're now paying more in the CPP and EI. So if you're making more than $40,000 a year, you will see those deductions increasing as of January 1st. And for any of other folks who are listening uh, here in BC, but who are residents and tax filers in other places, such as Alberta or other parts of Canada, you will have what's called bracket creep. And what that means is is that the tax brackets uh, aren't attached to the rate of inflation. So what that means is, is that it's set at a certain rate, And even though you're not pocketing more money, even though you're not keeping more money in your pocket every year, you're going to be automatically bumped into that higher tax bracket and therefore being taxed more. That isn't something that here in B.C. that we need to worry about. uh, But for folks in places like Alberta, you do need to keep an eye on things like bracket creep.
0: Bruce Claggett in for Jill Bennett this afternoon and this week. Omicron. Now, that's just changed everything in the last uh, week and a bit. And uh, the winter break is certainly going to be a different uh, sort of situation for students when they come back to school after the winter break. Uh, And the question is still out there. What about booster shots for teachers? Where are they? What about rapid tests for parents? What about uh, some of the... Reporting of cases in schools and the way it's all done. Where do you go to rely upon information? And uh, are we getting the full picture? One of the people that's been following this very closely and uh, putting out the best uh, collection of information from parents as being Kathy Marlis, uh, the creator of the BC School COVID Tracker Facebook page and Twitter page, and she's on the line now. Kathy, good afternoon and uh, Merry, or belated Merry Christmas.
4: Same to you. Good afternoon.
0: Uh, now, this is a whole different world. We're going to get different numbers this afternoon, and the numbers that we see of cases in BC today will not be the case in a week from now. How are you feeling
4: I think I'm feeling what a lot of people in the BC school COVID tracker community are feeling, which is uh, a lot of um, anxiousness, um, a lot of concern about going back to school at the state that we're in right now with, with the same precautions or lack thereof that we have in schools at the moment. Sending our kids back and, the, and our school staff back into this is a huge, huge concern for all.
0: Now, we want to be sure there are official streams of information, both from the provincial government, your local health authorities, and uh, also from school boards themselves. And those at times have been a lot different from what your group and your collection of parents and those who share pieces of information from you or with you have been. Um with Omicron coming in, have you seen even more people inclined to give you that information and to uh, be more in in touch with you? What's, uh, what's the uptick for you?
4: It's, you know, even when the school break started, we still have uh, notifications, uh, people confirming their positive test results of their kids. We're hearing from teachers, even at school administrators, write us privately, letting us know what's really going on in their schools and their concerns. So it's, it's heart-wrenching, actually, uh, to see that they feel um, like this gag order, like, we're not allowed, please, um, fearful of my job, but you need to know this is what's happening in our school. And it's a completely opposite picture from what public health or the health authorities are painting. So it's uh, it's been like that. From day one, it's gotten progressively worse, especially um, when September of this year started. It's been quite challenging. We've seen way more cases than we did last school year because the kids are not protected or vaccinated and they're not enforcing masks. And there's so many holes to the protections that are supposedly, quote unquote, there. Um, And now we have no doubt in our minds that that's going to just increase exponentially exponentially should they return to school? And, and, you know, the, the, the information we're receiving is validated. We're not sharing anecdotal um, information on our database. They're all confirmed positive cases and they're all uh, either letters from the health authority. So every case we document is, is a valid case.
0: Kathy Barlas, uh, creator of the BC school COVID Facebook uh, page and uh, the Twitter tracker. Um, you mentioned something that, uh, peaked up my ears and uh, possibly some parents that are listening to this uh, also kind of keyed into this. You said, should they go back? Do you think that's a possibility that uh, come uh, next week that uh, schools may not be back in session?
4: You know, we certainly hope that uh, schools either, you know, delay the start they're doing it in just about every other province, except so far in BC. In BC, we have a tendency to be reactive instead of proactive when it comes time to safety in schools and COVID. So we're you know, we're hoping to hear sooner than later because parents are anxious. They want to know where they stand and should they need to make any preparations for having their kids stay home longer or teachers need to reevaluate and replan for for January fourth or not. But you know, right now it's it's growing very steadily and rapidly to send our kids back as is, like, like nothing has changed on January 4th would be a huge, huge mistake in my, in my opinion. Um, and I think that unless they say, you know, we're changing how schools look, but they haven't announced anything and we're just waiting.
0: Now, to be fair, we're seeing masks in schools now and, uh, There are precautions being taken, and those uh, came into play this year. Uh, Are they not enough, or is it an enforcement issue? What are you feeling, Uh, and what are you uh, actually hearing from parents and and teachers?
4: Um, We're hearing a lot of frustration, and, you know, it's like they they gave us an olive branch. It took forever, and we had to fight so hard for a mask mandate in the schools and and to get even K to grade four masks because they weren't. And once they, they put that in place, we heard, we're still getting tons of emails and we post some of these stories uh, anonymously because we have a lot of people fearful for their jobs. But they are not, it's not being enforced. People are sending me holiday Christmas concert videos from their schools and they show kids all on the stage singing and we see two or three kids only with masks on and they're singing. So these, these masks are not enforced. These rules are just sort of Band-Aids. In, in many schools to just placate people. And we need people to, to stand up and say, no, this is the rules. We have to put the masks on when we go to a public, a public place in a store. Why are they not enforced in the classroom? This is safety. And right now we know that these cloth masks are not necessarily as safe in preventing Omicron that we need, you know, uh, N95 masks. We need double masks. So we, we need to really be very mindful of those protections and upgrading and making sure we're enforcing them.
0: Kathy, a lot of people are saying that, uh, you know, you really don't have to worry about kids for some reason. They seem to be more resilient to, uh, to any COVID, uh, let alone, uh, Omicron. Um, that's probably not what you're hearing. Maybe you could share a story that we haven't heard yet. Uh, something mm-hmm. that, uh, has just absolutely shocked you. Uh, have you come across anything that we really should know?
4: Um, I, You know, I think in general, there's a lot of people who are expressing, you know, their kids may not get as sick. I mean, we have had very sick and, and children and families report to us. I've had a mom who was sitting by the hospital bed of, of her son, who was a star athlete, uh, perfectly in good health, no um, other health issues. And he was incredibly ill. But the issue here for us, and like a lot of doctors um, that we've heard on on the news in Toronto um, and all over, said, you know, it's really about the magnitude of spread. And when you're dealing, it's just math. When you have that many people getting sick at once, there's going to be hospitalizations. We're going to overwhelm the healthcare system. But also, these kids, uh, the there's an uptick in hospitalizations in the U.S. of kids with COVID. It's it was in the news all yesterday. But also, they're bringing these virus the virus home to their families. So their child may not get severely ill, but any illness is enough for me. I don't know about you. But when you have a sick kid, I mean, do they need to get that sick or even moderately sick? We want to keep our kids healthy as possible. But if they give it to a uh, an immune compromised family member or a vulnerable family member who hasn't had their booster. We're not protected, and so then we're just unleashing all these kids. If we're saying we can't have more than six people in a restaurant at a table, but let's cram kids into a lunchroom, take your masks off, everyone eat, scream, shout, and then they get sick and we come home to grandma and grandpa who may be living with you or in our case, you know, my husband's diabetic. So, And, he, you know, he's vulnerable. If we haven't had our boosters yet and we're not protected, it's a recipe for disaster that can be avoided.
0: Top line number one thing you'd love to see in BC schools right now.
4: Oh my God! How do you pick the top one? Um, you know, I'd like to see I'd like to see a delay and let let this virus let everyone get boosted and get properly vaccinated. Kids get the double vaccines. If I had to pick one, it's okay. more than one. But delayed by how long? Top
0: how long would that take?
4: Uh, you know, good question. If it took a couple of weeks, it took a couple of weeks. I, I'm not sure. I don't know where they are in terms of rolling that all out. But some some say, you know, it could take until February. So, you know, the kids are resilient and they could, they could do really well and, and cope and learn online for a little bit. And let's get everybody properly protected because they're going to know that we care about them. And I think that sends a big message is that we're not putting them at risk and playing Russian roulette with our families.
0: Kathy Marlis, thank you very much.